call center busts, cracking cryptography, and patches galore. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Thank you for listening. My name is Doug Ameth. He is Paul Ducklin. Paul, how do you do? Very well, Douglas. All right. I, we like to start the show with a This Week in Tech History segment, and I have a twofer for you today. Two things that went live this week, one in 1863 and one in 2009. Both exciting, one perhaps less controversial than the other. We're talking, of course, about the first stretch of the London Underground going into service in 1863, the first underground system of its kind. And then we've got the Bitcoin floodgates opening in 2009, the first decentralized cryptocurrency of its kind, although we should pencil in an asterisk as Bitcoin followed in the footsteps of such digital currencies as eCash and DigiCash in the 80s and 90s. Yes, the latter was a rather different sort of underground movement to the first, (laughs) wasn't it? (laughs) But you're right, 160 years of the London Underground. That's amazing. Let us talk about uh, this. <laughs> you skipped the need to talk about Bitcoin slash controversy. Oh. Let's leave our listeners to ponder that one for themselves, Doug. Yeah. Because I think everyone has to have their own opinion about yep. and their own story. where Bitcoin I had, led us. <laughs> I had a chance to buy it at 30 bucks a coin and thought that was way too expensive. Yeah, Doug, if you'd bought it 30, you would have sold at 60 and gone around patting yeah. yourself on the back and Not even 60. everybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Sold at 40. <laughs> And sticking with the uh, subject of regret, there was a fake call center in the Ukraine that got busted. This uh, call center looks nicer inside than some of the startups I've worked at. So that that's something. This is a full infrastructure here. So what happened with this story, Paul? Like you say, it looks like a, a nice little startup. But strangely, when you look at the photos provided by the Ukraine cyber police, no one seemed to have turned up for work that day. And it wasn't that they mm-hmm. went during the vacation. <laughs> it was that all the people, and there were, I think, three founders and 37 staff. So this was a biggish boutique business. They were all in the next room getting arrested, Doug. Because although it was a call centre, their primary goal was preying on victims in another country. In fact, in this case, they were specifically targeting victims in Kazakhstan with banking scams. Basically, where they call up, they're talking to you using the same sort of language that the bank would following a carefully planned script that convinces the person or convinces sufficiently many of the people they're calling. Remember, they've got a long list, so they can deal with lots of hang-ups. But eventually, they'll convince someone that they really are talking to the bank. And once the other end believes them that they really are talking to the bank, then all of these things, everyone says, oh, they should have realised it was a scam. They should have known when they were asked to transfer the funds, when they were asked to read out two FA codes, when they were asked to hand over passwords when they were asked to disclose details about the account. It's easy to say that with hindsight. And I think we've talked about this on uh, prior shows when uh, people ask, you know, how could someone fall for this? Well, they make hundreds and hundreds of calls. They only need to trick one person. In this case, it looks like they defrauded about 18,000 people. So you don't need a super high hit rate based on your calls. That's what makes these so dangerous is once you get a victim on the line and you've got access to their bank account, you just start sucking the money right out. Once someone genuinely believes that they are talking to the bank and they've got a call centre person who's really apparently trying to help them and is probably giving them better service, support, time and compassion than any call centre they've called themselves lately, once the person's crossed that bridge, 
you can see why they might get drawn in. And of course, as soon as the crooks had enough personally identifiable information to fleece the person, they'd jump in and start sucking money out of their account and moving it to other accounts that they controlled. So they could then move it on immediately and out of the regular banking system, shoving it into cryptocurrencies. And that was what they did day in, day out. I don't have much compassion for people who don't have much compassion for the victims of these scams, to be honest, Doug. You know, I think a lot of techies sometimes look down their nose, like, how could a person fall for this phishing scam? It's full of mistakes. It's full of spelling errors. It's badly punctuated. It's got a weird URL in it. You know, life's like that. I can see why people do fall for this. It's not difficult for a good social engineer to talk to someone in a way that it sounds like they're confirming security details or that they're going to say to you, let me just check with you that this really is your address. But then instead of them reading out your address, they'll somehow wangle the conversation so you blurt it out first and then, oh yes, they'll just agree with you. It's surprisingly easy for someone who's done this before and who's practiced being a scammer to lead the conversation in a way that makes you feel that it's legit when it absolutely isn't. Like I said, I don't think you should point any fingers or be judgmental about people who fall for this. And in this case, 18,000 people went for, I think, an average of thousands of dollars each. That's a lot of money, a lot of turnover for a medium-sized biz of 40 people, isn't it, Doug? That's not too shabby, other than the illegality of it all. Um, We do have some advice in the article, much of which we've said before. Certain things like not believing anyone who contacts you out of the blue and says that they're helping you with an investigation. Don't trust the contact details given to you by someone on the other end of the phone. Exactly. Um, We've talked about caller ID, how that can't be trusted. Don't be talked into handing over your personal data in order to prove your identity. The onus should be on them. And then, of course, don't transfer funds to other accounts. Yes, of course, we all need to do that at times. That's the benefit of electronic banking, particularly if you live in a far-flung region where your bank's closed branches, and so you can't get in anymore. And you do sometimes need to add new recipients and to go through the whole process with passwords and 2FA and authentication and everything to say, yeah, I do want to pay money to this person that I've never dealt with before. You are allowed to do that, but treat adding a new recipient with the extreme caution it deserves. And if you don't actually know the person, then tread very carefully indeed. And the last bit of advice, instead of saying, how could people fall for this? Since you will not fall for this, look out for friends and family who may be vulnerable. Absolutely. Make sure that your friends and family know that if they have the slightest doubt, that they stop, think, and connect with you first and ask for your assistance. Never be pressurized by fear or cajoling or wheedling or anything that comes from the other end. Fear, cajoling, wheedling, and we move on to a classic kerfuffle concerning RSA and the technology media and trying to figure out whether RSA can be cracked. Yes, this was a fascinating paper. I think there are 20-something co-authors, all of whom are listed as primary authors, main authors on the paper. It came out of China, and it basically goes like this. Hey guys, you know that there are these things called quantum computers. And in theory, if you have a super powerful quantum computer, 
with a million qubits. That's a quantum binary storage unit. The equivalent of a bit, but for a quantum computer. If you have a computer with a million qubits, then in theory, you could probably crack encryption systems like the venerable RSA, Rivest Shamir Adelman. However, the biggest quantum computer yet built after years and years and years of trying has just over 400 qubits. So we're a long way short of having a powerful enough quantum computer to get this amazing speed up that lets us crack things that we previously thought uncrackable. However, we think we've come up with a way of optimizing the algorithm so that you actually only need a few hundred qubits. And maybe, just maybe, we have therefore paved the way to cracking RSA 2048. That's the number of bits in the prime product that you use for RSA, that if you can take that product of two 1024-bit prime numbers, big prime numbers, if you can take that 2048-bit number and factorize it, divide it back into the two numbers that were multiplied together, you can crack the system. And the theory is that with conventional computers, it's just not possible. Not even a super rich government could build enough computers that were powerful enough to do that work of factorizing the number. But as I say, with this super powerful quantum computer, which no one's near building yet, maybe you could do it. And what these authors were claiming is actually, we found a shortcut. Do they detail the shortcut in the paper or, do they, or are they just saying we found, here's a well, theory? Well, it's 32 pages and uh, half of it's sort of appendix, which has an even higher squiggle factor than the rest of the paper. So yes, they've got this description, but the problem is they didn't actually do it. They just said, hypothetically, you might be able to do this, you may be able to do the other. And we did a simulation using a really stripped down problem, I think, with just a few simulated qubits. So they didn't try it on a real quantum computer, and they didn't show that it actually works. And the only problem that they actually solved in proving how, air quotes, quickly they could do it is a factorizing problem that my own very many-year-old laptop can solve in about 200 milliseconds on a single core anyway, using a completely unoptimized conventional algorithm. So the consensus seems to be it's a nice theory. However, we did speak, I think, in the last podcast about cryptographic agility. And if you are in the US, Congress says in a law that you need cryptographic agility, and we collectively need it, so that if we do have a cryptographic algorithm which is found wanting, we can switch soon, quickly, easily, and better yet, we can swap even in advance of the final crack being figured out. And that specifically applies because of the fear of how powerful quantum computers might be for some kinds of cryptographic cracking problems. But it also applies to any issue where we're using an encryption system or an online security protocol that we suddenly realize, "Uh oh, it doesn't work like we thought. We can't carry on using the old one. The bottom fell out of that bucket. And we need to be not worrying about how we're going to patch said bucket for the next 10 years. We need to be able to chuck out the old, bring in new, and bring everyone with us. That's the lesson to learn from that. So RSA doesn't seem to have been cracked. There's an interesting theoretical paper if you have the very specialized mathematics to wade through it. But the consensus of other cryptographic experts seems to be along the lines of nothing to see here yet.
And of course, the idea is that if and when this does become crackable, we'll have a better system in place anyway, so it won't matter because we're cryptographically agile. Indeed. Last but not least, let us talk about uh, the most recent patch Tuesday. We've got one zero day, perhaps even uh, bigger than that. We say thanks for the memories, Windows 7 and 8.1. We hardly knew ye. (laughs) Indeed. Well, I don't know about hardly, Doug. (laughs) (laughs) Some of us liked one of you a lot so much they didn't want to (laughs) give it up. And a lot of you apparently didn't like the other at all. Yeah, kind of so an awkward going so away party. <laughs> that there, there never was a Windows 9, if you remember. Mm-hmm. Somehow a drained canal was placed mm-hmm. between Windows 8.1 and Windows 10. So let's not go into the details of all the patches. There are absolutely loads of them. There's one zero day, which I think is an elevation of privilege. And that applies right from Windows 8.1 all the way to uh, Windows 11. 2022 H2, the most recent release. So that's a big reminder that even if crooks are looking for vulnerabilities in the latest version of Windows, because that's what most people are using, often those vulnerabilities turn out to be retrofittable back a long way. In fact, I think Windows 7 had 42 CV numbered bugs patched. Windows 8.1 had 48. And I think as a whole, all of the Windows products, there were 90 listed on their website and 98 CV numbered bugs patched altogether. So it's suggesting that about half of the bugs that were actually fixed, they all have CV-2023 numbers. So they're all recently discovered bugs. About 50% of them go way back if you want to go back that far. So for the details of all the fixes, go to news.sophos.com where Sophos Labs has published a more detailed analysis of Patch Tuesday on Naked Security. The real thing we wanted to remind you about is if you still have Windows 7 and you're one of those people who still has Windows 8 because somebody must have liked it, you aren't going to get any more security updates ever. Windows 7 had three years of you can pay a whole lot of extra money and get extended security updates, ESU program, as they call it, Windows (laughs) 8.1, the thing that gives credibility to that argument that they wanted to leave a dry ditch called Windows 9 between 8.1 and 10, is that Microsoft is now announcing, you know, this this extended support thing that we do, where we'll actually happily take money off you for up to three years for products that are really ancient. We're not going to do that with Windows 8.1. So at the same time as Windows 7 sails into the sunset, so does Windows 8.1. So if you don't want to move on for your own sake, please do it for mine and for Doug's and for everybody else's, (laughs) because you are not going to get any more security fixes. So there will just be more and more and more unpatched holes as time goes on. All right. And we do have a comment on this article that we'd like to spotlight. It does have to do with the missing Windows 9. Uh, Reader Damon writes, my recollection of the reason there was no Windows 9 was to avoid poorly written version checking code, erroneously concluding that something reporting Windows 9 was Windows 95 or Windows 98. That's what I read at the time anyway. I don't know the veracity of the claim. And I had heard the same thing you did, Paul, that this was more of a marketing thing to uh, add a little distance. The firebreak. <laughs> yes, I don't think we'll ever know. I've seen and even reported in the article on several of these stories. One, as you say, it was the firebreak. If we just skip Windows 9 and we go straight to Windows 10, it'll feel like we've distanced ourselves from the past. 
I heard the story that they wanted a fresh start and that the number wasn't going to be a number anymore, so they wanted to break the sequence deliberately. So the product would just be called Windows 10, and then it would get subversions. The problem is that that story is kind of undermined by the fact that there's now Windows 11. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And the other problem with the, oh, it's because they might hear Windows 9 and think it's Windows 95 when they're doing version checking, is my recollection is that actually when you use the now deprecated Windows function get version to find out the version number, it didn't tell you Windows Vista or Windows XP. It actually gave you a major version dot minor version. And amazingly, if I'm remembering correctly, Vista was Windows 6.0. Windows 7, get this, was Windows 6.1. So there's already plenty of room for confusion long before Windows 9 was coming along. Windows 8 was Windows 6.2. Windows 8.1 was essentially Windows 6.3, but because Microsoft said, no, we're not using this get version command anymore, until this day, and I put some code in the article, I tried a Windows 11 2022 H2 release. To this day, unless you have a specially packaged design for a particular version of Windows executable installation, if you just take a plain exe and run it, it will tell you to this day you've got Windows 6.2, which is Windows 8. (laughs) And from memory, the Windows 90X series, which was 95, 98, and of course, ME, was actually Windows 4 dot something. So I'm not sure I buy the Windows 9 dot 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 version confusion. Firstly, we would already have had that confusion when Windows ME came out because it didn't start with a 9, yet it was that series. So products would already have had to fix that problem. And secondly, even Windows 8 didn't identify itself as eight, it was still major version six. So I don't know what to believe, Doug. I'm sticking to the drained and uncrossable emergency separation canal theory myself. All right. We'll stick with that for now. Thank you very much, Damon, for sending that in. If you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Amath, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.